While you're getting settled in, I'll let you know some exciting news that next week we will have the privilege to hear from Ed Rosen. Ed is going to uh, come and bring us a message next week and the following week. I mentioned this in the announcements uh, from the Olivet Discourse. Many of you may not know this, but Ed Rosen for years has been a spiritual father and mentor to me and has been a tremendous blessing, especially during the season where we have planted this church. And I am excited for you to get to hear from somebody whom I love so dearly and I count as a spiritual father and a man who is trusted with the Word of God. I think the next two weeks will be a blessing for you. But for today, we are going to conclude our look at submission to authority in the letter of 1 Peter. So if you will turn again with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look again at this section 13 through 17, focusing primarily on the 17th verse today. I'll read verses 13 through 17, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And as free people, live as those who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And thus the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for the opportunity to have studied this week and confess to you that it is not in me to bring this message to your people in a way that will change their lives. As eloquent as I try to speak, it is your spirit who must work. And so we rest now on your spirit and his power to be able to do the work that needs to happen in the hearts of your people so that they might be comforted, that they might be exhorted, that they might be challenged, that they might be convicted, that they might repent and find mercy in Christ alone, and that they might walk forward from this place empowered to be your soldiers in this world. Please help them this morning and help me as well. In the name of Jesus we ask this, and amen. Amen. One of the things that always fascinated me as a child was the obsession that Americans have with sports. I didn't play many sports uh, when I was a kid. I really don't understand why people would anyway. To this day, I've yet to see a sport that involves power-up mushrooms and boxes you punch with gold coins in them. I mean, where are the sports that involve the quest for the Triforce or the Master Sword, right? Amen, Aiden, right? Though these setbacks could not be overcome in my mind, somehow people in the United States have always had the grace to overlook them and still get psyched up about athletics. One thing that had the sway to captivate even me was watching coaches give motivational speeches. You get all these guys in a locker room down by X number of points, and this coach says something akin to dropping a live wire in a room with a wet floor. And everybody gets psyched up and ready to play. 
It's hard not to love a good motivational speech. Well, for those of you who have played sports, and for those of you who have watched movies with sports and motivational speeches, you know that the speech is usually followed by the coach giving some final instructions. Okay, I know we're all excited now, but remember your job. You need to do this, and you need to do that. You go here, run the bases, get a touchdown, don't get a red card, so on and so forth. Even after a galvanizing speech, everyone still has to know what to do, and if they don't do their job, the team usually doesn't do well. Well, this is essentially what Peter is doing here in concluding this section that we've been studying over the last five weeks, verses 13 through 17. He's given us one command, that is to be subject or submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's described what those institutions are. He's told us what their jobs are. He's given us some encouragement about why we should do good and how that has power to work in the world, overcoming the arguments of foolish people, putting them to silence. And he's reminded us that we as Christians are a truly free people. All of this has gotten us excited and encouraged about the Lord's will for us in the command to submit. But as he concludes these remarks, he's going to give us some final reminders. And he gives us four imperatives. You can see them right there in the text. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. As free people and yet as slaves of God, we're to leave this section of text remembering that these are the things that God wants us to focus on. These are the things that as free people and yet as his slaves, he is commanding us to do. How do you submit? How do you be subject? How do you behave in a world with a variety of different people that hold different offices that are in charge of different things? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. I don't really have an outline today. Um, we're just going to follow those four imperatives. And that's the first thing that I want you to notice. These are imperatives. These are commands. When we say imperatives in the scripture, I remind you that verbs in the Greek can carry the force of a command. They are requirements for us. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. We say, Lord, of course I love you. I want to obey what you command. So it's important for us as Christians to know in the scripture where the force of the command falls. In verse 13, he has told us to be subject or submit ourselves to every human institution. And since that time, he has not given us another command. He's not given us another imperative. But here we have four back to back to back to back. Just like that football team that's gotten that motivational speech, they're ready to run out on the field. Defender, remember this. Offense, do this. Quarterback, I need you to do this. He's giving us those directives, one after the other, so we remember how we are to act and what we are to do. Also, remember where we were last week. This is the second thing that I want you to notice. That verse 16, where he's called us as free people to use our freedom in positive ways, doing good, but not as a cover-up for evil because we are God's servants. Remember, we are free but we're not that free. We are free, but we're not free to sin. He requires things of his people like honor, like love, like fear. What would it look like if someone who was under your authority lived in a way that was completely free towards you and disregarded your authority? I have a, a gentleman that I mow for. 
Um, his name is Lawrence. He owns a plumbing company. And so oftentimes we'll swap work. If I need plumbing done, I'll call Lawrence. And then I, he's got an apartment that I mow for him. And so we kind of do a little bit of a work swap. Well, Lawrence is one of the most jovial guys that I know. He is happy. He loves Jesus. He's full of life. And um, when he comes over to my house, he's playing little pranks with me. He'll pretend like the water pipes are going to blow or something. And he always tries to keep it lighthearted because I don't like plumbing. I don't like water leaks. I don't like anything like that. Well, it, it's fun for me to see Lawrence as just that kind of a free individual, right? I mean, he's come over. He's helping me with this work. And he's so full of life. He's so free. But if I was to leave Lawrence to his work and then come back in about 15 or 20 minutes and he was going through my garage fridge looking for something to eat or drink, I would have to say, hang on a sec. Um, you know, you've always struck me as a pretty free guy, but you're not that free. <laughs> That's my fridge, not yours. And this is the way that the Lord wants us to see ourselves. We have been set free from sin. We've been set free from the chains that bind us, from all that could have held us down and drug us to hell. We have been set free, but we're not completely free. We are the Lord's slaves. Jesus said it this way in Luke 17. Now, which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him after he comes in from the field, why don't you come immediately and recline at the table to eat? On the contrary, Jesus says, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too... When you do all the things which were commanded, you say, and here's the heart behind what Christ commands of us as free people and yet his slaves, brothers and sisters. When you've done all the things which you were commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what we ought to have done. We are under his authority. And so we submit in a way that says, Lord, how ought I to interact with people in the world? What ought I to do? Jesus tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, coming through the writing of Peter here, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I want you to, when you come to the text of scripture, Think about asking good questions of the text. Think about how you approach the text of God's word because your heart ought to be to think God's thoughts after him. You want to think God's thoughts after him. Though these writings came through the pen of a human author, they are divinely inspired. They are the very words of God. And it is our job as Christians who are good students of the word of God to want to think God's thoughts after him. Why did you write what you wrote, Lord. For example, it says honor everyone and then love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, we have two honors at the beginning, at the end of this verse. That's very strange. Why? Well, honor everyone. Okay, so maybe he's giving us this big topic you're going to honor everyone. And then he gives us three ways in which we can honor everyone. That's actually the way that the NIV translates this passage. It says, show proper respect to everyone. And as if there was a colon after that phrase, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. 
I actually think, however, that this is not what Peter is trying to communicate to us. Um, there's three reasons why I think this is not a good way to read the text. First of all, the people that follow honor everyone, or literally in the Greek, honor all, are not all people. You've got the brotherhood, the church, you've got God, and then you've got the king. Peter has been discussing with us our behavior towards unbelievers or towards those outside the church. And yet here he does not include that if we take honor everyone to modify everything that comes after it. Secondly, God is included in this list. Honor everyone and then he says fear God. Well, that's strange. Is God an everyone? God is beyond everyone. He is a being beyond who we are. And in 1,244 times this phrase, all people or all is used in the New Testament, not one time does it include God in the context. It's only speaking of other people. Lastly, the verb honor, as you could probably see yourself, is different from Verbs like fear and love, and we're going to look at those in just a minute. It's better to see this as four separate imperatives, four separate commands that come to us from the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying honor everyone. Let's look at that first imperative. What you owe the world as a free man and as a slave of God is to honor all people. The word honor means to fix a value on something, to affix a value to something. Now, how do we know what that value is? Well, God has told us at the very beginning of the Bible. He has said that everyone who is made in his image is worthy of honor. Everyone who is made in the image of God is worthy of honor. That is everyone from the least to the greatest. Everyone from the least to the greatest. The very beginnings of life where cells inside of the uterus of a mother begin to split and divide and create a human being, which those are human cells, and they will develop into a human being given enough time, the proper environment. That being, even at the beginning stages of life, deserves all honor. Also, those at the end of their life. On our way here this morning, uh, my wife and I were just commenting on the beautiful trees and um, how the leaves change color as they near the end of this life cycle, this year. Um, and, and the trees, there's such a beauty to it. And we reflected on how that reminds us of those who are grown in age, those who have that wisdom, those who have that gray hair, right? And there is such a beauty to that season of life. But isn't it interesting, church? What are the two targeted groups in the world today that are absolutely hated by our modern-day secular culture. It's the unborn and the aged. The unborn and the aged. They don't want to honor them. They hate them. They despise them and are ready to even say they're not worthy of life. They're only worthy of death. And yet, Peter tells us here, honor everyone, not just the young, the unborn, not just the aged, but children, grown-ups, people who are unmarried, people who are married, honor everyone. It goes across the board, honor all. This changes the way that we think about the world in some pretty significant ways. Number one, if we take Peter seriously here, as we ought, and we do desire and strive to honor everyone, this should destroy the sin of partiality in our hearts. 
This should absolutely destroy the sin of partiality. James says, my brothers, show some partiality as you... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read that right. Show no partiality, good readers of God's word. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or you can sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Peter says, no, everyone gets honor. Honor all. Honor every single person the way that God has made them. This is what is so despicable about the social justice movement. This is what is so despicable about the woke church movement. They do not want to take Peter at his word here. They do not say, honor everyone. They say, honor some especially. Honor some especially. And they only say that to those who need to give honor to those who deserve it, especially. So if you have a certain skin tone, or if you have a skin tone that they like, but you act like those who have a certain skin tone, you should give honor. But those people, no, they're the only ones deserving of honor. This is despicable. If we see or hear about a police shooting in the inner city, what is the first question we've been taught to think? Well, who's white and who's black? Who's white and who's black, right? Police shooting in the inner city, probably a white cop, probably a, probably a black man. Well, if it was a black cop, he was acting like a white guy, right? Why has the world taught us to think this way? And the church has bought into it. The church has said, you know, I'm going to think along these lines. Peter says, no, no, as a Christian, as God's slave, you owe honor to everyone across the board. No partiality. This is also what is so evil about the abortion movement. You know, the Germans had a saying, and in German, I'll try and pronounce this as best I can, Leben unwürdig des Lebens. That means life unworthy of life. What is that? It is in direct opposition to what Peter's commanding here. No, not honor someone. Not honor everyone. Honor, honor the ones that we think should be honored. This is exactly what a pregnant mother says about her preborn child. That they don't hold the value that God ascribes. That they're not worthy of honor. By the way, when we minister on the sidewalk, we not only give honor to that preborn child, we give honor to the mother who's intending to murder it. We love that mother because she is everyone. And she deserves honor because she is made in God's image. And as an image bearer of God, he loves her and longs for her to repent. And we want to see that happen. We want to see that happen. This week, Daniel Haas and I had an opportunity to stand on the sidewalk outside of Planned Parenthood on Cherry Street. We actually had a great conversation with a man who was sitting in his car. Um, he had dropped a woman off and we began to talk to him about why he was there and um, he should go in and um, get this young woman and um, that they shouldn't support Planned Parenthood. 
he gave a lot of the standard answers that people typically give. Oh, you all are prejudiced against us. You hate people who need these advantages. We're not even here for an abortion. We're here for birth control. Um, he accused the church of being biased and all sorts of wrongdoing. Well, you guys were involved in the Crusades and you killed a bunch of innocent people. And, and this is standard stuff that we hear a lot when we're out on the sidewalk. But by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Daniel and I decided we're going to give this man nothing but honor. We admitted that there had been periods in the church's history where it has done wrong and that ought to be repented of and that ought to be changed. And there are loads of things going on inside of Planned Parenthood that are wrong and evil. And we can't support that and he shouldn't either. He dishonored us and spoke disrespectfully to us. We gave him honor. By the way, were you tempted to think during this little story that I just gave, what ethnicity this man was? Whether or not he was married to the girl that he dropped off? Was he a father? How many kids he had? Peter says it's ludicrous to ask. As an image bearer of God, he deserves honor. And so we honor him. And we honor him by telling him that his sin is damnable, and that he will go to hell for it, and that we want to see him come to Christ and be saved. That is how we honor him. The only worldview that conquers the prejudicial stream of thought in our day is the Christian worldview. The true, unbridled, fully unleaded, diesel version of the Christian worldview. That's what destroys the sin of partiality. That's what makes us as a people living free in such a way that says, I am so excited that I get to honor every person I meet made in the image of God. That's what Peter's getting at here. That's the excitement that he wants us to have. He also tells us that because of the honor these people are due, we should call out everywhere in the world the good, the true, and the beautiful. We're commanded by God to be exhorters. We're to call out the good, the true, and the beautiful even in those who are wicked. Um, I've told many of you, and I know they're still surprised at this, that when I was a young man, I was in art classes. I was an artist. I did painting. I did pottery, um, things like that. We did a lot of studying of famous artists. One of my favorite artists was a guy named Chuck Close. Um, parents, you can, um, with your cooperating together, talking about it ahead of time, you can pull up some images of Chuck Close's pictures to show your kids. Um, there's nothing vile um, that you'll see. He was what was called, as an artist, an ultra-realist. He did these paintings that were like 20 by 10-foot canvases, and he would paint self-portraits of people and their faces, and he is so talented. You, you think you're looking at a photograph. You think you're looking at something that, uh, my kids saw it and they said, Daddy, there's no way. He took a black and white photo. That's, that's just a picture. He didn't paint that, right? That's amazing. Even from my children. What from the mouth of babes? They're calling out the good, the true, and the beautiful. I also told my kids the other day, this is why I think abstract art is despicable to God. Because it is chaotic. It's nasty. It's just throwing things on a page. You take a guy like Chuck Close and you look at what he paints and then you look at somebody like Jackson Pollock who would just drip paint all over a page and what does the world say? Oh, this is beautiful. I love that kind of painting, right? Why? Because they're still in darkness. In darkness, you can't tell that what you're looking at is nonsense. That's why the music that's discordant and so loud and raucous, it, that's also something that, I don't think that God smiles readily on. He loves the good, 
the true, and the beautiful. Why? Because when he was finished with creation, he said, this is good. This all reflects my truth. This is beautiful. I love what I've made. And as people made in his image, we ought to reflect that in the things that we create, in what we do and in what we say. And in, we, in our honoring of others, we have to honor in that way, calling out the good, the true, and the beautiful. Even if, by the way, the person that's doing it is an unbeliever. Chuck Close um, died many years ago. I don't think he was ever a Christian. I think it's likely today that he went to hell, unless he had a deathbed conversion. I think it's likely that he was in hell. And that's sad, but everything that we see that is good, the true, and the beautiful, let's call it out. Let's, let's not take fundamentalism too far. Let's not take it to the nth degree. If you see something that has an aspect of beauty to it, but there might be a little stain of sin with it along, it's okay to still call out the good, the true, and the beautiful. I, I mentioned several weeks ago, and Kind of surprised I didn't get any emails about this. Um, I mentioned the Harry Potter stories. And when, when people think of Harry Potter, they immediately think magic evil. Okay, so throw it away, right? It's, it's worthless, don't want to have anything to deal with that, right? Now, brothers and sisters, I am not going to try and convince you to read a book series that your conscience won't allow you to. Please don't. Please don't. If you don't like Harry Potter or Narnia or Lord of the Rings or any of those mythical stories, that's fine. You, your conscience should not be bound to read them. But I, I can encourage you that there is good, true, and beautiful even in things like that. These people are made in God's image and the stories they write reflect in many ways the beauty of their creator. For example, in the Harry Potter stories, if I was just to give you a summary of it, Will likes to mention this to me all the time. You've got a young boy who is part of a house under the head of a crest of a lion. And that boy's job is to go and defeat the house with the crest of a serpent. He's to destroy it. And in order to do that, he has to bear the punishment on himself to the point that he dies. And in dying, he saves all the people that he loves. Now, I don't know that J.K. Rowling was anywhere near Christianity when she wrote that story, and likely is not today. But what do I see in a story that tells something like that? I see something that is good, true, and beautiful. That is the gospel story. That is beautiful. And it's okay for us to say, look, there's some positive elements here. Way to go. Good job. Nice painting. Great catch. All of those things. We can call out the good, the true, and the beautiful. This is how we're the salt of the earth. This is how we bring the world's eyes to come around and see, oh, that's what's really going on. That's what God's really doing in the world. How are we the Jesus people? Because we call out all the good, the true, and the beautiful that we see in the world. Well, secondly, Peter commands us to love the brotherhood. Peter commands us to love the brotherhood. This is actually a restatement of what he's called our minds to in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Remember, in chapter 1, verse 22, we were to go from a familial love a Philadelphia love, the brotherly love, that love of family members, that love of close acquaintances, that affectionate kind of love, Peter called us to something deeper. He called us to that agape love, that God love, that love that sacrifices, that love that is immutable, that love that is enduring. Jesus says in John 15, no one has greater love than this, 
to lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love that we, as the people of God, as freed slaves in the kingdom of Jesus, are called to have amongst our brotherhood, are called to have among the church. You remember the story, I think I've told this before, of Corrie ten Boom, when she gave that talk and afterwards, one of the Nazi guards who had held her captive at Ravensbrück concentration camp came up and wanted her forgiveness. Now from a distance, sitting in the auditorium, she can have an affectionate kind of love for him. I'm glad that he's sitting here. I'm glad he's listening to this talk. I hope he knows Jesus. I hope he knows Christ. But then afterwards, when he comes up and asks for her forgiveness, she has to die to herself inside. She has to really put love into practice. She has to go all the way and give the kind of love that Jesus gave her. That's the kind of love that God commands us to have in the church of Jesus Christ. We can have affection from a distance, but love presses in. Love presses in. This is the kind of love that God prescribes for his people. It's a further up, further in kind of love. Our brother Ken, in several weeks, is uh, just a little over a week actually, is going to endure a difficult surgery. You know this. When you think in terms of affection, you think of people in the church who are going to be thinking of him, longing for his deliverance, and even occasionally praying for him. The God-type love. How do we put boots on the ground for that? How do we do this? It's the kind of love that is willing to give up food or water or sleep to suffer in a way along with him and plead his cause before the Almighty from whom alone belong deliverances from death. It's the love that says, if he's going to suffer, I will suffer with him. I want to walk with him through this valley. And I'm going to help him. And I'm going to pray for him. Not just in an affectionate way, but in a sacrificially loving way. So can I give some specific application for our love of the brotherhood in the church? This is a charge to the men. And men... I know I've spoken to you and I've tried to speak to the ladies, also the children as well. But this is a, a charge for you specifically as the leaders of your home. Are you, men in this church, loving the brotherhood by the way that you parent while you're fellowshipping with other believers? For example, before the service, the ladies have a host of duties when they walk in the door and in order to prepare ahead of time for the fellowship meal, they're required in that kitchen area back there. During the hour of setup before church, is our job, excuse me, it is our job to prepare this place as a holy place. A place set apart for the worship of the triune God. That is a job that is specifically and chiefly given to men. We are the spiritual leaders in this church. So God requires of us that we set an atmosphere in this place of reverence and respect. Are we loving the brotherhood when our children are running around the room before the service while we fellowship with one another? Are we pretending that we're keeping an eye on them when actually we're so engaged in a good conversation and it may be an edifying one too that our children are getting out of hand and we're desecrating the place of worship of Almighty God? What about at mealtime? We set an example for everybody as men by being the last to go through the line. I think this is right. I think that's good and true and beautiful. 
The ladies have worked hard and they go first and then the children follow. But they often follow unsupervised unless mom is helping them. And often they will take more than is their fair share of food and they don't eat it all and sometimes it gets thrown away and other men miss out. Were we in doing that in our leadership there because our dereliction of duty is leadership. We are leading. Are we refusing to sacrifice for our wives and our children? What if we were to take our children through the line or our wives take the young ones and we take the old ones or you work it out with your wife however you want to. That's fine. But have we neglected our duty as where we are as Christ the King right now? I ask you, consider, are you shepherding and stewarding the blessings that God has given you in children? What about at fellowship times? What about at prayer meetings? When we set apart time to be with the brothers, are we sacrificing for our children when they go off to play every time unsupervised? Oftentimes they return with a complaint of mistreatment. Are we loving our wives who will have to rein the kids in tomorrow after they've been with their playmates for a full day and no one's keeping an eye on the speed limit of their hearts? Are we serving? Now, men, we are leaders. That is who God has designed us to be. There are never times, Chris, when a man can't be alone with other men, that fathers must always have direct care over their children, that a mature child must be visibly supervised by his or her parents at all times. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not. Parents must be judicious in how much freedom and privilege they give their children. And it is right to do so and even let that leash loose a little bit more as your child gets older and matures. However, as we often heard when we were at Basswood Church, there are no parenting-free zones. God holds us as men responsible for the parenting that we do when our kids are unsupervised, as well as the parenting that we do when we are in direct communication with a child. He holds us accountable for all of it. So, we should consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How do we love the brotherhood? Let's get firmly in the driver's seat, men, of this car so it doesn't go off the road and get someone hurt. Can I give you three tips for this? I want to give you three tips. Num uh, number one, uh, Tammy and I do what's called tomato staking. Um, if you've ever seen a tomato plant, um, you let those things grow without anything around them. The fruit will oftentimes get heavy, it'll fall to the ground, and then it can get infected and diseased and it's no good for anything. So what do you do? You put a cage around the tomato. And as the tomato plant grows up, it's got something to lean on, right? And so like a stake or a cage, um, if we see a child that has a need or maybe needs to be in close proximity to mom and dad, we'll bring them close. We'll communicate with the child. Hey, sweetheart, I want you to hang out with me during prayer meeting tonight, okay? And that child just stays with us. Yes, it's an added responsibility, fathers. It is so precious. It's wonderful time with your child and they're getting an opportunity to hear some discussions that the older men are having, which is good for them as they learn to converse and grow and mature. Also, family meals um, after the service. Tip number two, when we do a fellowship meal um, on Sundays, we don't always have to just sit guys with the guys. Um, we could sit with our wives. We could also sit with our families together. I'm not saying we have to do that every time. I'm not laying out a bunch of new rules. But consider these as options 
Maybe you could get together with another family and say, hey, our family wants to eat lunch after church with your family today. And you all pick a table and your whole family dines together. And then you've got that time where you're keeping an eye on your children and you're helping to shepherd them and steward their hearts. Also, family fellowship times. This one may sound pretty extreme, uh, but Tammy and I have a family from, we met at Basswood years and years ago, and um, just sweet family. Their children were so well behaved. Whenever they went to a fellowship gathering, they would always have their children with them during the adult conversation time. Other kids would go out and play, but their children would always be with them every single time. I don't think that they mentioned that they could remember times where they sent their children away. They were always with the parents. Now, that's pretty extreme. I'm not saying you have to do it every single time, but what benefit would it be if your entire family was sitting around with mom and dad during a fellowship hour and listening to adult conversation? How would that cause the other adults to think about what they say and maybe being a part of your child's discipleship in the ways that they speak and what they say and how they can encourage the children present? These are just some options that you can take. I'm not mandating anything, but I'm encouraging you to think, how do we love the brotherhood? Fathers, let's get the reins of our families and remember that leadership happens not just when we're at home, but also while we're at work and also during our fellowship hours at church. Love the brotherhood. And then fear God. Number three, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Solomon also said in Proverbs chapter 1, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He said in chapter 10 of Proverbs, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. He said in chapter 22 of Proverbs, The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Now, isn't it interesting that in the scriptures, we are commanded to fear God? I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Have you also thought about how perfect love casts out fear? Yet we are commanded as Christians to fear our God. If you today are not in Christ, it is right for you to fear God. And you should fear Him for one reason. His righteous judgment that is coming. If you are not in Christ today, there is a judgment day coming. And it is a judgment day full of righteous judgment. Everything that goes down on judgment day will be right and true and just. Children, do you understand that when we worship the Lord on Sunday, we are worshiping a God who sees every spot of sin Every hidden motive of your heart, God sees. And one spot of sin, children, hear this, one little spot of sin is detestable to Almighty God. He hates it. Even a childish sin, even a sin that you say, mom and dad didn't see that, or it's not that bad, all of it is detestable to God. And it would be right for Him and if there is no repentance, He will cast anyone who has remaining sin on them into hell 
to forever be punished. You know, Jesus describes hell as a place where worms do not die. Do you know why the worms don't die? It's because they always have something to eat. Jesus describes hell as a place where the fire doesn't go out because it never lacks fuel for burning. Eternal souls will stay in hell for eternity and will be justly and righteously punished for their sin. If you are not in Christ today, you ought to fear God. You are in a hopeless state in your sin. Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But there is hope. Because of Christ and His work, because the man from the house of Lion, from the Lion of Judah, came and crushed the head of the serpent by dying on that cross for our sins, we can be saved from that hell. Perfectly saved. Not saved in a way that maybe the Catholics would say, where we, we need to go to a little... A, a, an intermediate place where we burn off a little bit more bad stuff? No, no, no. God saves to the uttermost. Right now in this life, God saves to the uttermost. When He chooses to save, He saves all the way. So today, young or old, if you repent, if your mind changes about this God and you say, no, I have been wrong, I have been in sin, and I'm going to be damned for it. I'll go to hell for this. And you cry out to God for salvation. The word of God promises us that you will be saved. The word of God promises us that you will be saved. Unbeliever, you ought fear the Lord. But today if you repent, you won't have to fear him that way anymore. So why is the believer commanded to fear? Why is he commanded to be afraid of his God? How is it that we, his people, are to fear him? We are free, and yet we are to fear. Here, we are commanded to fear the Lord in a way that means right or due reverence. An awe, a respect. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, as I've quoted before, Aslan is described by the beavers as a lion who is not tame. He's not on a leash. He's not something that you can control. I think Christians who are Calvinists often think this way about God. You think that everything is so predetermined that God's like a robot and He just responds in certain ways without even thinking about it. I like the way Lewis describes Aslan in the story. He's not a tame lion. Don't think you can put your finger on God. Don't think you can put God in the dock and say, I know what He's going to do so I can manipulate things this way and do this. No, you ought to fear your God. For he is not under your control, you are under his. But, as Lewis also describes Aslan, he's good. He's good. We can trust him. He is good. As a child ought never fear wrath and unbridled anger from a father, but ought revere his father and respect him. So we are called in an even greater way to fear and reverence and stand in awe of our God. And how do you grow in the fear of God? Think about it this way. You can't grow if you don't know. You can't grow if you don't know. Have you ever wondered why people today are so freaked out about supply chain failures? About incompetence in the government? 
about vaccine mandates, financial failures, marriage issues, troubles at work, etc. It's because you care to know so much about that. By the way, it's not wrong to have information on these things. But know this, what you dwell on is what has dominion over you. What you abide in is what rules you. And if you want to grow in the fear of God, you ought to open up your Bible and you ought to get to know your God. You ought to open up your Bible and you ought to get to know your God. Christian, today you can repent of being too lax about your focused study on the Word of God and take it seriously. Go home even after the lunch hour and open your Bible and get to know your God. Notice this, we are not commanded to fear the emperor. The last imperative, honor the emperor. We're not commanded to fear him. We ought not fear the ones who rule over us. Fear not the one who can destroy your body. And then after that, what does he do? He can't. He's lost all the potential he can to do any greater harm to you. Jesus said, fear him who can throw your body and your soul into hell. This means that we ought to disobey the government if need be. But Chris, we talked about in verse 13 how we're to be subject for the Lord's sake. Yes, that's true. And we also know that there are times when the human institutions above us command what God forbids and forbid what God commands. And in that case, we ought to fear our God and not fear what will happen to us if we disobey and not fear our government. In fact... We honor our government when we refuse their tyrannical orders because we are holding them to the standard that the Word of God holds them to. We are holding them accountable. We are saying, thus saith the Lord. And we ought be able to stand before our government leaders and not tremble before them. We sang last week, Reformation Day, a mighty fortress is our God. The prince of the power of the air, the one who has seemingly tons of authority in this world, Martin Luther said, he's grim, but we tremble not for him. We're not going to be afraid of him. You resist the devil. You don't fear him. You can resist tyrannical overreach by your government, but you ought not fear your government. You ought fear your God. Finally, looking at that last imperative, honor the emperor. This command comes after the fear of God, as I mentioned Peter is going to say something similar in a few verses. He's going to say in verses 18 and 19, Slaves are to submit to even unjust masters. Now we're going to take some time to talk through the issue of slavery and what it looked like in the Old Testament, what it looked like in colonial America, what it looks like today. But here, Peter in verses 18 and 19 says, Slaves are to submit even to unjust masters. Why? Because it is a gracious thing when being mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's the fear of God that grounds our honoring of the governing authorities, of those institutions that God has ordained. Peter's also reminding us of something. It's to remind us of where we've come from in verse 13. Don't forget what I told you back at the beginning of verse 13. Hupatasso, submit yourselves, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It is God's will that His appointed authorities be honored by us. 
Let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that we turn a blind eye to injustices by the government. As John the Baptist called out to the Tetrarch Herod about his lawlessness, we too must hold our officials to the standard that they are commanded by God to enforce. It also does not mean that we may not peacefully protest their tyrannies. I guess we need to define what a peaceful protest is. This is one of the many lawful means, a peaceful protest, a truly peaceful protest, is one of the many lawful means that we can use to appeal to our city and our fellow citizens. We're called as Christians to disciple the nations. What do we do when we peacefully protest? We say, thus has not said the Lord. He didn't say they can act this way. He didn't say that they can do this. Submitting or honoring the government, the king in this case, the emperor, does not mean that we may defend ourselves, or excuse me, does not mean that we may not defend ourselves if the state turns violent on us. The scriptures as well as our founding documents bind us to defend ourselves should the government fire the first shot. So what does this mean? What does honoring the emperor look like? It means that the authorities God placed over us were appointed by him. And as such, they deserve real, genuine, joyful honor by Christians. God has set the value on them. And we want to call out to them what that value is. We want to give them that honor. We are free to submit to them and free to esteem them highly because of the charge that they have been given over us. This kind of benevolence from us will encourage those who are striving to do what is right. Those governing officials who see the tangled mess of web that they're in and they're trying to do what is right. They need Christian encouragement. They need honor. They need us to say, we support you. We love you. We're here for you. We're going to vote for you. Keep doing what's right. And our loving, kind, joyful, genuine, real respect will keep burning coals on those who are intending to do evil to us. It will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So, as we close, I ask, at the end of these five weeks of learning to submit to God and His appointed authorities, do you feel like a team who's limping into the locker room at halftime and you're already down by about 35. Perhaps you feel like you will never conquer your anxiousness or your anger or your cynical attitude towards those in authority. Chris, if everyone here knew what kind of parent I am or how selfish I feel or how I put my own need needs above my husband's or wives, it would be a disgrace to me. How I long for the moments when my kids go to bed and I know when they move out, I will long to have them back in my home in bed again. Do you come to church every week and you feel church like an absolute failure to your God? You didn't pursue Christ this week like you should have? Do you feel like he's running out of patience towards you? Can I remind you of something to continue with the game analogy? The outcome of this game has already been decided. You're already a victor. You've already won. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In Christ, you will emerge victorious over sin and self 
and this fallen world. God is not merely affectionate towards you, but he showed sacrificial love to you to such an extent that there is no greater. He gave his only son so that he could have you as his son. He hasn't given up on you and he will not stop until you resemble your Savior, Jesus Christ. His pursuit of this end is relentless. He will never stop until the job is done. Do you fear the Lord? Then let that sense of fear work well on you and cause you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Remember, in Christ, you're already victorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its commands and we thank you for its encouragements. We thank you for its chastenings and we thank you for its many, many blessings. Your word tells us, and we read in our readings this last week, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases towards us. That every morning we wake up, the mercies are new all over again. And that His faithfulness towards us is greater than we can imagine. And it will never cease. Lord, I confess to you, this is the only reason I can keep going. Is to know that you will not give up on me. And I pray for my brothers and sisters too. For all of us this week, that that would be very real to us. And that as people look on in Anderson County at Christ the King they would see a bunch of people running around like slaves who have been set free who are eager to submit to their absolute authority, God, and those that He desired to put over them. That they would see our love for one another and that their heads would turn and that they would be in awe. That they would say, those are Jesus' people. Lord, we want to see conversions in this area. We want to see people come to Christ. Would the gospel be very present on our lips this week with our own children as well as with lost people that we meet in any number of circumstances and situations. May Christ be ever on our lips. Bless us as we fellowship now, as we commune together, as we celebrate and sing again. In Jesus' name, amen.